So, hello, welcome to IRC Book Club, the show where every week we reconstruct, deconstruct, and generally talk about a famous business or sales text uh, that we have picked. This week we are on chapter six and seven of The Effective Executive. We're not. You've missed out chapter five. We're on chapters five and six. Of the oh, effective I thought I'd read the wrong chapters. <laughs> chapters five and six of The Effective Executive by Peter Drucker. Um, I've always wanted to do this. Lauren, roll the titles. In short, I thought chapter five, I didn't want it to end. Chapter six, really? I couldn't want it to end quick enough. Interesting, because what I've started saying to myself at the start of these chapters is, this book is so widely spoken about in high regard by such important people, it must be good. Yes. And I've entered into it thinking, stop whining about him and read it. There's lots of rich people, lo lots of rich... Lots of people who are much more Valley successful types. than me. Lots of rich Silicon Valley types all running around Burning Man talking about the effective executive. Correct. Yeah. So chapter five. First things first, it's called. Correct, correct. And the first thing I aligned is, I underlined is, if there is one secret of effectiveness, it is concentration. Yeah. 100% on and the it, money. And, it, and he comes up with stuff, this fella, where he, he has these moments of being incredibly concise and you can, you can blink and miss... You blink and miss it because the rest of it's so, so boringly written. So dense, yeah. And you can miss a pearl. And I think it, I, I underlined, well, I underlined it, asterisked it and wrote, wow. I mean, I just underlined play. it, but yeah. If there is any one secret of effectiveness, it is concentration. And then underneath that, he, he, there's a couple of bits which I've actually, I think, are well worth quoting directly. So he said, there are always more contributions to be made than there is time available to make them. I underlined that. Yeah. Any analysis of executive contributions comes up with an embarrassing richness in important tasks. And any analysis of executives' time discloses an embarrassing scarcity of time available for the work that really contributes. No matter how well an executive manages his time, the greater part of it will still not be his own. Therefore, there is always a time deficit. And he then goes on, and this is the bit that I think is warrants some discussion, to say... The more an executive focuses on upward contribution, the more he will f require fairly big, continuous chunks of time. The more he switches from being busy to achieving results, the more he will shift to sustained efforts. Efforts which require a fairly big quantum of time to bear fruit. Yet to get even that half day or those two weeks of really productive time requires self-discipline and an iron determination to say no. And I just thought, what a killer opening to a chapter. I mean, you could talk on, about that for half an hour. Oh, we could make the rest of today's conversation about that, couldn't we? I agree. Because there's, the, there's so much in that. I agree. There are a few things that occurred to me in that. And I mean, I, I don't know whether Dave Shields could read, actually. But if Dave Shields could read... I hope you're watching, Dave. If Dave Shields could read... <laughs> he always used to say, didn't he? He always used to say, working hard isn't about working long hours. That's right. And actually... That's sort of what... I remember it was one particular sales meeting where yeah, he actually I remember it. He he pointed off. at people and he went, you're lazy. You're lazy. And, and everyone's looking kind You're of, lazy. That fella's here before me, leaves after me. And his point was, he said, you think working hard is sitting here from seven in the morning till seven at night. It's not. Working hard 
is doing the right things and having the strength to overcome an objection. Then and there. There and then, and refusing to be beat. It's the strength to assert yourself when you need to assert well, yourself. It's the strength, it's, actually, to say to, no to people. To say no. To say no to certain people. You know, don't get it right. Say, we we yeah. have to wish. Uh, yeah, it's, not, it's not good when a client qualifies out on you. But actually, if we only worked on the deals that become sales, we'd work a day a week. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've got through to a fella today, a prospect, and it looked like a really good prospect, managing director of a sizable security business. And I caught him and he, he was like, semi terms and conditions, semi terms and conditions, semi terms and conditions. And at the end of the call, I went, I'm just not going to bother doing that. You're right, yeah. Because I thought, this is going to become a price-led conversation. First to the bottom. Price-led, race to the bottom uh, decision-making process. I've got better clients than that. I've got better things to do with my time. And, and he went, what do you mean you're not, you're not going to bother? I said, it's not going to bother with that. Thanks very much. But that's hard work. Mm, that's harder work than saying yes and sending him my T's and C's. And buggering about for five minutes. And then minutes. chasing him up, hoping that he liked the world's driest document. Yeah, yeah. Oh, did you like my terms and conditions document? No, I didn't. It was really dry, full of legalese. Uh, and didn't demonstrate to me any of the value that you can yeah, provide a business. So, so, so that's what I thought about when I read that paragraph. But I, I just thought about Dave. I think it has layers. There's a million layers mm -hmm. in this, though. I think that whole point about the chunks of time and the iron will it takes to say no. Yes. The iron will it takes to say, you know, it's a little bit like I was working on that thing this morning for, for us, for that new uh, product offering we're doing. That's harder work in a way than picking up the phone. Well, it is when your phone rings. Yeah. Because you've got to not answer your phone. Correct. And that takes iron will. Mm, when some guy who's meant to be getting an offer today is ringing. But I've said to myself, well, no, seven till nine o'clock this morning, that's what I'm doing. Yeah, 100%. And I think that's what he's doing. Well, doing at. this is an iron will. Because actually, oh, God. it's 4.30 on a Friday. And all right, it's the back end of the day, but it takes the iron will to read the book. We're read creating content that's creating our brand. Yeah, it's a shame it's, nobody seems to like it. Or oh, do they like it and just not click the like they button? They do. Uh, we're getting, I think they're getting better oh, no, at no, it. They're getting yeah, better. I'm taking it. So, yeah, I thought that was fab. Uh, absolutely fab. And then it, he, he, he makes a really good point here. We rightly consider keeping many balls in the air as a circus stunt, yet even the juggler does it only for 10 minutes or so. If he were trying to do it longer, he would soon drop all the balls. And I think we, everybody has a sort of makes this sort of badge of honour about everybody's a badge of honor about how many emails they get emails multitasking how much they've got to do how much they've got to keep going and how much they've got to think about but he's saying he's yeah great it's a circus stunt mate nobody can do it and what's really interesting is he says here but few people i think can perform with excellence three major tasks simultaneously now you never watch a pint with jg you're the, no the, i don't watch you <laughs> in the pint with the episode of a pint with jg that we shot I shot that episode before I read this chapter. Right. And in that episode, what I'm talking about, this last most recent one, is how candidates shouldn't have more than three interviews on the go at any given point Oh, do you know, time. I saw the title actually, yes. And it's based on a concept called Miller's Law. Miller's Law states that the human mind can only hold in RAM five plus or minus two things at any given point in time. We've only got the RAM for that. Okay. Um... And, and what he's effectively alluding to here is this Miller's Law, where we only have so much RAM. But yet people are often, I think we're overloaded. I think, and I've alluded to this before when in relation to this book, I think the phones are just grossly overloading us. 
think the device. Well, Peter Drucker would say, "Don't let the phone overload you." Actually. Well, Peter Drucker would say, "Have the iron will to turn all your notifications off." I mean, I have actually. Yes, so have I. It's very rare I get a notification now. I only get notifications from things I Facebook. really. <laughs> rugby league. Facebook, ru important rugby league news. <laughs> no, but seriously. It, yeah, that, yeah. It, 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 but most people don't. Most people are slaves to the notification machine, aren't they? Yeah, I 100% uh, agree with that. I, I, I did like that, actually. Yeah. Um, and So what else have you seen in this chapter, first things first? So page 97. Yeah. Uh, I underlined a couple of things, so I don't underline quite as much as, quite as much as you. Is he sloughing off or sloughing off? Yeah, I did have to look that up. I can't work that out. So, for, for but, I, I, but, he, but, you know, to summarise it, he put, if we did not already do this, would we go into it, Neil? And unless the answer is an unconditional yes, then drop the activity or curtail it sharply. I think we often get pulled from pillar to post because we let ourselves get pulled from pillar to post. Well, I think it's a really interesting one. If, if we went... I th I thought about that very point. If we did not already do this, would we do it now? I think it's a really useful exercise, that. Oh, man. Well, you know, years and years ago... Um, Imagine I, I... if we just sat down for a day and went through everything that we do in the business and asked ourselves, if we didn't already do it, would we do it now? Would we, if we started the business today, is this how we'd do it? Oh, you'd get rid of a lot of stuff. Well, well, well we've completely changed our business process. We have? Yeah. Yeah. For, for that reason, really. Yeah, 100%. So, so. I, so I like that, I, and, I, and I could see good sense in that. And then he goes on the next page to say, today is always the result of actions and decisions taken yesterday. Today is always the result of actions and decisions. Yes, it is. And I thought that's a nice, simple way of looking at it. it so if you He's were to, full of these. So if you were to think about something, so if I were to say, Johnny, you need to do that, and if you stopped and looked and, think, and thought, if I do that today, what will happen tomorrow? I think you'd make a lot of different decisions. I do that now, what will happen tomorrow? Because I think we just get drawn into, like Drucker's saying, doing lots of different tasks that actually don't affect the end outcome that we want. Instead of saying, why am I getting drawn into doing that? Yes. It happens a lot, I think, that. I think the tail wags the dog. So and I often. Think, and I think the tail is our busyness, our eagerness to... to be effective and do things that actually stops us doing it. I think that's what he's referring to. If I did that today, what will happen tomorrow? If I don't do that today, what will happen tomorrow? How would that affect the way you well, make there decisions? Well, there's an old phrase that knocks about, does it make the boat go faster? Yeah, 100%. 100% there is. Does it make the boat go faster? I think it's from an Olympic rowing team. It's from Steve Redgrave's rowing thing, yeah. From, yeah, I think there are, there's actually a book about it. Mm. Called, does it make the boat go faster? Which is a similar principle, isn't it? Mm. You look at every single thing you do and ask yourself, does this make the boat go faster? If it doesn't, you don't do it. And then he goes on to talk about investments in managerial ego. Yes, I liked that. He, he, um, I did notice, and I did write here, that he went from page 98 and 99, where I just wrote jabbering. Well, I don't know, I wrote a fair bit on... Did you? Uh, 98 to 99, uh, yeah. And, and, then, and then he starts talking about... Uh, there's a couple of bits. One, yeah, I liked that point about managerial ego. Mm, mm, so give me, mm. give me some thoughts or examples on managerial ego. Well, I think a lot of the time. But I, I think the way I'd describe that is I think we have a meeting culture. Yeah, okay. And I think there's a lot of meetings that, you, that we seem to have that are part of stroking the ego more than, actually, more than actually getting something out of it. And what I was thinking about when I read this chapter is about all the salespeople that we deal with that drive all over the country. I think the ones that are the most successful are the ones who are most selective in the action that they take. Often the ones doing the least mileage. Probably. 
Um, They're the ones that refuse to... The ones that don't go unless an appointment is so well qualified mm, mm, mm. that it's unbelievable. But I think there's a lot. There's a lot of, and maybe I'm saying it because you know that I, it's just not my mo at all. But I think there's a lot of ego involved in the actions that people take, rather than being actions that actually result in the end outcome. Yes. Ha, ha, the question of, am I going to this meeting because it's a really good meeting to attend, or am I going to this meeting because it makes me feel good about the fact that I'm going to a meeting? And a lot of people aren't that self-aware of the fact that actually they're going to the meeting because it makes them feel good about the fact that... Well, they're, they're busy fools, aren't they? Particularly with customers. Yes. Because they think, oh, I've got to be... But a lot of that is a cultural issue. You know, it's right? interesting. In sales, a lot of that's cultural because people are nervous and they want to be seen to be going to see customers. Yeah, but there are the ones that do badly. Yeah, but there are lots of cultures in which... And it's interesting. I recently, need to I recently had a meeting, to uh, you know, a meeting to get a job spec out of somebody, basically with a fellow, you know, you know the company, big SI, all the rest of it, and I met the chief operating officer. And after 24 minutes, it was in London, I was down to see something else as well. Um, I said, I've got to be honest, I've got all the information I need now. And he looked at me and said, uh, I can just stay and waffle for a bit and we can be nice, so I'm just going to go. And he went, yeah, I'm good with that, Mike. And we shook hands and we left. <laughs> and a candidate is actually, the candidate would know who it is because I've taken his feedback from him today, actually. And um, I told the candidate this, and he went, yeah, I can see that I've met him. He's a very effective communicator. Now, there's no as or graces. He didn't ask how my daughters are. He don't want to know you. He don't want to be in But well, that's not our transaction. No, the appointment was to give you the information you needed to be able to look after his, his, his account. Yeah, he's seen one candidate, I think, has done pretty well. And for you to get the information you needed. Correct. And he's given you the information now, and you understand his needs. Correct, we're done. You've, you've agreed to work together, right, I'm done, thanks. I'm off. I don't want to be your mate. Yeah, it's interesting. You don't want to be your mate. Anyway, so page 100. Above all, the effective executive will slough... Or slough. Slough. <laughs> off. Uh, and just for those of you watching, the spelling is... S-L... Well, it's spelled like slough, the place the way you all go. Well, and... Lauren's got a degree in English. What does Lauren reckon on this one? Slough or slough, Like Lauren. Dictionary Corner on... Um... Oh, slough. Lauren's telling oh. us it's slough. So anyway, above all, the effective executive will slough off an old activity before he starts a new one. Right. Like that. I really like that. Uh, so simple. This is necessary in order to keep organisational weight control. Without it, the organisation soon loses shape, cohesion and manageability. And, and, and uh, again, that's one of his points where you just think, well, yeah, that's really simple. But you're really right. But he's bang right. Yeah, yeah. He's bang right. And then he makes another point about um, nothing new is easy. It always gets into trouble. Unless one has therefore built into the new endeavour the means for bailing it out when it runs into heavy weather, one condemns it to failure from the start. The only effective means for bailing out the new are people who have proven capacity to perform. Such people are always ready, busier than they should be. Unless one relieves one of them of his present burden, one cannot expect him to take on the new task. So simple. Can't say, oh, can you take that on and solve that really big problem as well? But don't worry about having not finished either. Don't worry about the other two things that are also already yeah. taking up a boatload of your bandwidth. Uh, and then he he talks about people hiring in. This is, I think, very relative to our world. Oh, you've you've underlined uh, the bottom paragraph of page one hundred. One hires new people to the bit that you've li highlighted as well. Yeah, yeah. It's man. funny how we in this book we've both pretty much highlighted exactly the same parts of exactly the same pages. One hires new people to expand an already established and smooth running activity, but one starts something new with people of tested and proven strength. That is with veterans, and I think that's so right. How often do we see companies? 
open up a new venture and bring in a new body for that new venture to come into a business they don't know. Yeah, yeah. In a market they don't know or a culture they don't know where they're doomed to failure instead of saying, well, who have we got internally in the business who can do that? Who, who we know who's a banker, who's a top boy. Let's incentivize them to do that and bring somebody into a job that we know actually is a, is a function that works. Yes, I agree completely. And yep. what he's saying is you bring people into functions, you don't put people in to create new functions. I think that's so relevant from an... Uh, uh, in, our in general, world. that hasn't changed it since the 70 years well, ago. Well, this is how... God, God knows however long ago. Well, it's 30 years old, isn't it? Yeah, so in our context, you get a guy that's doing a great job in a sales job and you've tweaked and got that sales job. The function itself, and we, you know, we were talking about different functions we're bringing into the business. Yes. If the function... It's, the question is, is the function right and is the person right? And what he's saying is, you, you get your function right and then take a good person out of that function put another person into the function that's right and have your good person get the next get that new function right absolutely and i thought that was so I, I, right he's right with that yeah I, I genuinely i just loved this chapter I, I thought this i like the next bit actually an organization needs to bring in fresh people with fresh points of view fairly often if it only promotes from within it soon becomes inbred and eventually sterile yeah but if at all possible one does not bring in the newcomers where the risk is exorbitant and i mean he's absolutely right you know we're hiring you know, a function at the minute, and the people I've been uh, interviewing for us, they said, you know, I've explained the job, and it's quite, uh, quite, quite druckerish actually, to fulfil a particular outcome. I've said, but we do want your input, and these people have got recruitment experience from different recruitment backgrounds. It'll be interesting to see what they make of our operation. And some of them have got richer recruitment experience than you or I. In I, certain, I interviewed a lady in, in today. In certain she was absolutely dynamite. Yeah. Yeah. And then he talks about priorities, and I love this word, posteriorities. Yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and there's a, a really good paragraph here, I'll quote it. There are always more productive tasks for tomorrow than there is time to do them, and more opportunities than there are capable people to take care of them, not to mention the always abundant problems and crises. A decision, therefore, has to be made which tasks deserve priority and which are of less importance. The only question is which will make the decision, the executive or the pressure. Love that. Mm-hmm. Are you applying pressure? And I, how often have you, have you heard me say to people, who's, are you applying pressure to the job or is the job applying pressure to you? Very much so, because the job then forces your decision. Yeah, and, and, of, and often you see people where the job applies pressure to them and then it completely changes their behaviour. But what's really interesting, I think, in the context of our world is we operate with salespeople, don't we? We do. And a lot of the salespeople we live in, live in, live with, live in very quarterly driven environments. They do, and I know what you're going to say. Well, and we get involved with clients, and there's always this conversation where, I've got to go, I've got to go, I can't talk, it's quarter end. Like, like it's the end of civilization, and the pressure is determining the behaviour. Well, they get stuck into a loop that they can never then get out of. And I can't help but sometimes, often I sit there as an outside observer. I mean, we've always run monthly-driven environments, but... yes. You hear these... Well, these... we've never put that much pressure on the end of the month, though. No. We've it's always... monthly by measurement, but... Yeah, but you, you hear it and you think, this guy's just doing whatever he needs to do to please whoever he needs to please because it's quarter end. It's the pressure dictating his behaviour. It's the quarter end dictating this guy's professional behaviour instead of, actually, the priorities of hitting a number. Now, what I'm not sat here advocating is that all those companies switch immediately to a yearly target because that will just compound year-end. But I've often wondered, 
how much the pressure drives yeah, behaviors. Yeah, I know, but you just, there's got to be a point in sales that, that, that drives somebody towards a goal, hasn't there? Well, it's inescapable. That's that. a whole other book, Daniel Pink Drive. Inis um, in, in, inescapable, that. Anyway, we've got to keep going through this, Jonathan, because yeah, we've got the. Because there's so much to talk about. Next. So, uh, and then he talks about postponing, which is really interesting. And then we're into the mon monster chapter, which I, don't, which I didn't enjoy at all. I, uh, I'm hoping you got more out of it than me, which will spark some discussion. I'll tell you what I thought about this chapter. I thought to myself, I like the start of it, the elements of decision-making, and it said, therefore, effective executives, therefore, need to make effective decisions. I thought, good. Yeah. This is starting well. We then got into a history lesson about Bell Telecom <laughs> that just got... Do you know what I wrote here? Useless anecdote. <laughs> That's funny. Useless. It wasn't useless, though. He should have just put it in a paragraph. Oh, but, man. Oh, my God. I'll tell you what. Somebody could ask me about Bell Telecom now. I and, couldn't. And really? My brain just went. And, and it wasn't until page 113. Where we got back to the book. Where we got back to actually talking about it. Um, and they all said they, tack they all tackled a problem at the highest conceptual level of understanding. They tried to think through what the decision was all about. And then they tried to develop a principle for dealing with it. Their decisions were, in other words, strategic rather than adaptations to the apparent needs of the moment. And I, t and I, I tell you what, I can sum this chapter up for you, basically. It says you've got two types of problem. One of your types of problem is a generic problem. So, i.e., it might be the first time it happens, this happens to you, but it's going to happen over and over and over again. Yeah. So let's create a solution to that problem. A process. Then, a process, and then always apply that process. I get that. And I, he talks I feel about that. the power core and all that kind of thing. And then he says, sometimes you've got an exception. And where there's. Correct. The generic goes, always has to be answered through a rule. thought, right, okay, now we're talking. I like that. Yeah, absolutely, 100%. And, and, and his point is truly that's, unique. That's very down with us, me and you. You know, you and look that's at down us, with sort of life, right? We're, really. we're, we're, we're quite process driven with how we manage problems, aren't we, within the business? So well, his point is he said, he, he said, true exceptions are very rare. Yes. True, truly unique events, sorry, are very rare. However, when one appears, one has to ask, is this a true exception or only the first manifest manifestation of a new genius, uh, of, of, a, of a new genus? And I tell you what made me think this is, I've got a client at the minute who's very ageist. He really wants people who've been around the block. Right. He said, listen, I don't want anybody. So it's inverse. Yeah, yeah. He says, I don't want anybody sub 55. What? Which is a very unusual thing to say. And I said, go on. He said, listen, Mike, Brexit is around the corner. He said, I want people who've been through the financial crash. I want people who've been through the dot-com crash. He said, I want people that have been there before. Because to everybody else that hasn't been there, that's young, this is going to be a big monumental thing to ha that happens to them. Right. Whereas everybody else that's been through it twice, they're going to go, yeah, I've got a system for overcoming that. I know and that's do. sort of what this book's about, really. This is the first, this chapter, this is the first time that problem hits <coughs> you. You think, but yeah, wow, that's unique. And then he, Drucker's saying, is it unique or is this just the first time you've seen it? Yeah, okay. And that's what you need to figure out. But let's get it right. I had to listen to the useless anecdote Ooh. to get to that point. And I think he's 100% right about that. I really, really, really did. Yes. The, and I, I liked that whole concept of, is it a generic? I, I think the stuff you take out of this book, for example, we've just made a decision, haven't we? in um, 
the management meeting that we held just before now, a, a procurement decision. Yes. It's a £2,000 procurement decision. Nothing big. It's a trial for some software, three months at £2,000. Puppy dog sale. But actually, what he's saying is that's a decision we make over and over and over again. So where's your process for it? Correct. Or are you just going to go through the same rigmarole of spending two hours to And he's absolutely bang right. Actually, we should have a formal process for evaluating those kinds of decisions, how the decision gets made, when the decision gets made, so that we just run the decision-making process. Yes. I mean, he's talking about problems, but you're absolutely right. That's exactly what he's saying. Same thing, isn't it? If an employee resigns or, you know, in the past, actually, well, what do we do now? Or we have to make a set of decisions. Well, why? Because the first time it happens, it's unique. But actually, it's generic. It's actually, that's his point. He's saying, to you it's unique, but actually it's generic because it's not going to not happen again. So therefore, before you sit down and start working out what to do, you've got to ask yourself, well, actually, is this going to happen again? Yeah, right. So therefore, we need to look at this in a different way. And what's the procedure for dealing with that? And And then apply it over and over again. And what would be the procedure? He's absolutely right. Unfortunately, the style of writing is... And then, I don't know what page you're on, the next thing I underlined was, and I actually put a few... Glad we got somewhere. Oh, was part two, the elements of the decision-making I'm process. on page 120. He goes... The oh, effect- you've got six pages ahead. Yeah, I mean, let's get it right. Oh, there's, there's an interesting point here on 114, where you've actually got to give, give our, our, our listeners and, and followers the, 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 the info. So what he basically does then is he actually gets to some nitty-gritty about 15 pages into the chapter, um, which is the elements of the decision process. So what he says is the elements are number one, the clear realisation that the problem was generic and could only be solved through a decision which established a rule. Number two, the definition of the specification which the answer to the problem had to satisfy. The boundary conditions. So defining the specification which the answer... How badly written is that? But I get his point. Three, the thinking through what is right. That is, the solution which will fully satisfy the specification before attention is given to the compromises adaptations. So what he's saying is, you've got to ask yourself, well, what would we define as a successful decision here? Mm-hmm. And number four, the building into the decision of the actions carried out. Number five, the feedback, which tests the validity and effectiveness of the decision against the actual course of events. So he breaks that down into the first one, is, which we've talked about, is, is it a generic or a symptom? And we've talked about process. And then we, it does get us to page 120, doesn't it? 100%. Which I bet you've, you've circled. I'm going to go for it. It's guest, pri- guest prices notes, which is the effective decision maker. Ah, oh, Johnny! Assumes, hey, hey, hey. Yay, absolutely. It, yeah. And then he also says, he always assumes that the event that clamours for his attention is in reality a symptom. He looks for the true problem. He is not content with the presenting problem. Is never... never the presenting problem. And if the event Correct. is truly unique, the experienced decision maker suspects that this has heralded a new underlying problem and that what appears as unique will turn out to have been simply the first manifestation of a new generation. Um, and then what he's basically saying is effective executives therefore don't actually make many decisions. But the reason is not that he takes too long in making one. In fact, a decision on principle does not, as a rule, take longer than a decision on symptoms. The effective executive does not need to make many decisions because he solves generic policy situations through a rule and a policy. He can handle most events as cases under the rule, that is by adaptation. Great. And then number two is he calls about the second major element in the decision-making process is clear specification as to what the decision must accomplish. Yes, I I underline the same thing. Yeah, what are the objectives that the decision has to reach? What are the minimum goals it has to attain? Bang on. And then, um, you know, simple things like asking yourself, what's the minimum needed to resolve this problem? 
It's a simple question, isn't it? If you, if, if, if you went into a key meeting where a decision had to be made and used those as a framework, I've got to say, I think that's well, a Well, he, he then goes on to create the boundaries. And obviously I learned about the Cuban Missile Crisis reading this book. Did you not know about the Cuban Missile not Crisis? Really, You're not really. Not much of a historian. Not really. Well, I only did, did, did history so I, could, uh, so I could talk to a girl. Okay. No, it did work. Okay. Uh, I didn't pay any attention to what the teacher said. Um, but then he goes on about the boundary conditions of acceptability. Yes. And I think, you know, just to explain that, what Drucker's saying is he's saying, this is our what problem. What page are you on now? 123. Okay. But this is from memory, really. I've just underlined a bit of 123 that's made me think about it. So I don't know necessarily what, what page this will be on. It'll be around there. But, of course, what he's saying about is, he's saying that we've got this problem and these are the boundary conditions that we need to solve. And then what do we need to do? But then actually, on page 124, I underlined, Ooh. the boundary conditions had changed and Roosevelt was enough for decision makers to know that almost intuitively that this meant abandoning his original plan altogether if he wanted to have any effectiveness. And I thought to myself, I wonder how Brexit is going to affect the boundary conditions that we have in terms of how the effective executive views their sales force. Go on, expand. So, so currently, one of the boundaries of the sales director is to look at the salesperson and say, you've got to bring in a target of a million pounds, but the minimum boundary is 750. Yes. I and, and anything below that, I'm going to fire you. And I wonder if the effective executive is looking at it thinking, hang on a minute, we sell software to banks, the liquidity is going to dry up a little bit post-Brexit, so therefore, my guys are going to struggle to hit their target. So let's lower the boundary by which we still deem them, them having met their problem, their problem being hitting their target. I think there's going to be all sorts of knock-ons with that, with the changing economy. And I wonder whether, you know, the people that we deal with, sales directors, MD, salespeople, are going to reset their expectation in the changing landscape, which will change with Brexit inevitably, and what the knock-on will that, of that will be. And funnily enough, I wrote that, and then he makes reference to the British joining the European um, Union. Central Union, further Does on he? down the chapter. Yeah. Wow, Christ. And I, thought to myself, and I thought to myself, oh, come on, Pricey, that's just too smart. But I do wonder about that. And actually, the reassessment of the people that we deal with, if they read this book, you know, to take your point about, about quarter end, what are the boundaries of, of acceptance that they set on their salespeople depended upon the different economic uh, forces or the different so change people's decision making about salespeople. I think so. So, so well, I know in two thousand and nine, I remember looking at every given consultant in the room, saying, "If he pays, if he covers his salary, he can stay." Well, so it was interesting. Is I don't know whether they still do it, but years ago we used to deal with Capita on the school side. I don't know if you can remember, but they didn't have a target. No. In the middle of the school, so you, you know, you talk about boundary conditions and economic, economic external forces. I, I remember looking at several people in 2009 thinking, oh, if the market was better, he'd probably be all right. If he can, he can get a couple of placements and just cover his costs for the year, as far as I'm concerned, he can keep his... Yeah, exactly. So I did think that was pretty relevant. Cause <laughs> what... Quite a few of them couldn't. <laughs> well, it was very, very tough, wasn't it? Yeah. So I did sort of like that. And I don't know, what, what page are you on now? 126. I'm on 126. So number three, one has to start out with what is right rather than what is acceptable, let alone who is right. Precisely because one always has to compromise in the end. But if one does not know what is right to satisfy the specification and boundary conditions, one cannot distinguish between the right comparison and the wrong compromise, and will end up making the wrong compromise. Which means what? 
I think what he's saying there is, what we're trying to achieve, what are our boundaries, great, let's start with that and then figure out what we've got to do to get there. Pretty much. It's just, it's just very verbose. Now I, I, now I worded that in Yorkshireish, in Yorkshire. In Mike Price Yorkshireism. R rather than Peter Drucker's Harvard education. But that's what he's saying, and I think he's 100% right about that. Yes. Uh, I, he, there's a good example he gives later on, and then he, 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 that I'll go through. Then number four of, of the elements of effective decision-making, converting the decision into action, is the fourth major element in the decision-making process. While thinking through the boundary conditions is the most difficult step in decision-making, converting the decision into effective action is usually the most time-consuming one. Yet a decision will not be effective unless the action commitments have been built into the decision from the start. And I think that's a really big one. You know, how many times do people, they go to meetings, they meet about this, they meet about that, but actually, what's the takeaway? What are we actually doing? What we're actually going to do now. Yeah. Everybody's full of good ideas and no action. Yeah. What are we actually going to do? What's going to get done and holding people to a And I think if you look at the done. most successful people on the planet, they think of what their outcome is, they think of the boundaries, then they take action to get yeah, to those boundaries. Yeah, they, they get shit done. And your fellow at Dropbox, I mean, I don't know his name or anything. I suspect I that's probably what he did. He's a, well, he's clearly got stuff done. He had an idea and got it done, didn't he? He just did it. Yeah. Um, and then converting a decision into action requires answering several distinct questions. Who has to know? What action has to be taken? Who is to take it? What does the action have to be so that people who have to do it can do it? The first and the last of these often too overlooked with dire results. And there's a great example here. I'll read this. Uh, I really, this rang a bit for me. Uh, it rang a bit of a bell. It said, a story that has become legend among operational researchers illustrates the importance of the question, who has to know? What page you? This is 128. Who has to know about the decision? A major manufacturer of industrial equipment decided several years ago to discontinue one model. For years it had been standard equipment on a line of machine tools, many of which were still in use. It was therefore decided to sell the model to present owners of the old equipment for another three years as a replacement, and then to stop making and selling it. Orders for this particular model had been going down for a good many years, but they shut up as former customers reordered against the day when the model would no longer be available. No one had, however, asked, who needs to know of the decision? Therefore, nobody informed the guy in the purchasing department who was in charge of buying the parts from which the model itself was being assembled. His instructions were to buy parts in a given ratio to current sales, and the instructions remained unchanged. When the time came to discontinue further production of the model, the company had in its warehouse enough parts for another eight to ten years of production. Now, in our modern world, obviously, with ERP and supply chain software, that just wouldn't happen. But the point being is, understanding in a decision who else is affected, who else needs to know, I think is really key. And I know from our own experience, sometimes we've made decisions and perhaps just not quite sufficiently articulated those decisions. Well, you're getting into a different book, aren't you? Yes. You get into Patsy McCord's yes. Keep a Bonfire uh, material. Absolutely. And then number five, finally, a feedback has to be built into the decision to provide a continuous testing against actual events of the expectations that underlie the decisions. Yeah, I mean, I underline the same bit, obviously. Yeah, absolutely. And then that's really the end of, of that chapter, isn't it? I think we then get on to effective decisions, which sounds like exactly the same thing, but I'm sure it's slightly different in chapter... Well, I believe that's the final chapter, I thought it was it? funny, this bit. This is page 133, and, and I'll finish on that. Failure, failure to go out and look, and look is the typical reason for blah, blah, blah. And he, and he goes, um, Europe, or the failure of the British to accept, to accept until too late, the reality of the European common market. <laughs> <laughs> I missed that. That's great. I know, that made me smile, that. 
Yeah, I mean, but, this was written a long, 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 long time ago. Thirty odd years ago, forty years ago, wasn't it? But so, 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 you know, the summary of my, of this book for me continues, which is, you've got to bloody concentrate to read it. But yeah. if you concentrate and read it, it's decent. You've got to pick the diamonds out. You've got to really concentrate, really heavily. Yeah. But I think you know, I, 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 uh, I'm sort of growing to like Drucker a little bit. If we had to read another Drucker book, Drucker Drucker bucket, I'd do my head in a bit. What are we? What are we reading next? Do you know? I've not really given it much thought. I think we were talking about. Uh, are we reading the sales leadership book? A book on sales leadership by a guy called Keith Rosen, who's actually going to join us on the show. Brilliant. Where does he live? In America. He's going to join us via Skype. Brilliant. Yes. Um, we we believe we can manage that technological challenge. He's going to join us on one of the episodes of the show as we go through the book. That sounds the cool. The book, Lauren, can you remember what the name of the Keith Rosen book is that we're going to do next, please? Wait for the delay for Lauren to hear it because it's about two seconds. It's called Sales Leadership by Keith Rosen, if you guys want to order it. It's about 20 quid on Amazon. I think it comes out mid-October. But I reckon if we butter Keith up, he'll send us some advanced copies so we can start reading it. Let's hope so. Yes. Um, if not, we'll make a decision on our next book over the course of the week and publicise it on LinkedIn. Bryce, big plans for the weekend? Yeah, good plans actually. Uh, going to the cinema. Off to the pictures to see the book about the Hatton Garden robbery. Hatton Garden thing, yeah. Hatton yeah, Garden love robbery. that. I've been really busy. I did my stupid cycle journey. That's yeah. why it wasn't live last year. So, last week. So last week, I'm not a cyclist at all. I did 123 uh, kilometres and rose 2,200 metres. So by this time last Friday, five o'clock, I was still cycling. I'm going to keep going for another three hours. So actually this weekend, I need to keep it mega chilled out and actually relax and see my kids. Right. You? Uh, You're watching the boxing. I'm going to watch the fight tomorrow night and I'm going to watch a lot of rugby league this weekend. Is there nothing else on? Australian rugby league in the morning, um, British rugby league in the afternoon, and then the fight in the evening. I'm going to go and see that. So I'm, well, I'm not going to go and see that. I'm not going to Wembley, but uh, I'm going to go and pay Sky uh, some money to, Top stuff. to watch it. Right. So thank you very much. Uh, we will see you all next week. Goodbye.